Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. This is Chris Stemp. Man, are we glad to have you here. Listen, let's get into it. Our guest this week needs no introduction. In fact, many of you are new to this episode probably because of this guest. We got Neil deGrasse Tyson, folks. I mean, it was one of those moments we actually did a video interview and I'm looking at Neil going, man, I've seen your face everywhere. I've heard your voice everywhere. And now I get to pick your brain for an hour. So really a thrill for me. And even more important, I was so excited to be able to bring it to you. And I think one thing that we did, I think we were able to ask some questions that Neil might not normally get, you know, which is what we try to do. For example, we talked to him about imposter syndrome. We talk about fame. We talk about a lot of things. And of course, astrophysics and everything in between. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this intro because I really want to bring this to you. Two things. First, make sure you stick around to the end of the episode where I ask Neil the questions that were submitted by Patreon supporters. Now, remember, if you support us on Patreon, you can ask our guests any questions you'd like. In fact, every question that has ever been submitted has been asked of a guest. So for as little as 2 or $5, you can get not only ad-free episodes, but direct access to these guests. And I think really some of these questions are awesome. The other thing that's important to note is 
This interview occurred months and months ago. It might have been even December last year. I honestly don't remember. But because we have recorded a number of episodes in advance, it has been scheduled to air in mid-June for a long time. Well, obviously, the national conversation has changed. And so we do touch on race in this episode. Uh, Neil addresses it in his book, Letters from an Astrophysicist. Now, I'm not sure how this conversation would change at the moment if Neil and I were talking, but I just wanted to give you some context on when this occurred. Along with that, I just want to make note that I will be releasing a special episode where we talk about our stance, what we've learned along the way as it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement. But long story short, we support it and we are going to make a concerted effort to have more black experts, more black guests on the show. And we are also going to be donating a portion of our profits, which again, I don't want to take up too much time, but we will discuss this on a special episode. That said, I am so excited to bring you this episode, Neil deGrasse Tyson, as we discuss his new book, which is Letters from an Astrophysicist. Please don't forget to rate, review on iTunes, subscribe, all that good stuff. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Here it is, one of my favorite conversations of all time with the brilliant Neil deGrasse Tyson. Enjoy. Neil, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be counted among the ranks of smart people, unless it's it's just four smart people. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is four smart people. But here's the thing. I You just crossed the threshold. I mean, we've got a high bar. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, maybe. But, you know, so uh, I'm, re- I'm really good. I'm just, just barely peeking over the fence. <laughs> right. No, I will say when we started this, if somebody would have said 10 years later, you're going to be talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson I mean, every ounce of time I put into it would have been worth it. So I, I really, you know, you are a staple of the uh, this the the world of curiosity, the world of let's have conversations to expand our curious mind, which is what this show is all about. And I really I wanted to start with a very simple question that I think oftentimes I know you've answered, but for our listeners is really kind of critical. What sparked your curiosity? Well, so I, I, let me answer that in an inverted way. Uh, it's the real question is, why did my curiosity never leave me? All right, we're all curious as children. That's the, what what kids do. They turn over rocks, they pluck petals off of flowers, they jump two feet into mud puddles. All of these that, in fact, much of which is identified by parents as destructive, are in fact exploratory experiments conducted by children and but it's not seen that way because it's it's very entropy inducing in an environment but you you don't have small children with the expectation of keeping a neat home this these are not commensurate goals so almost everything that a child does that destroys the order of a home is the consequence of an expressed bit of curiosity so the question is how do you maintain that curiosity, not only through school, but outside of school as well, and then become a lifelong learner? And I think that's one of the mysteries of education right now, and I'm thinking long and hard and deep about it. Um, you know, Why do we have kids running down the steps on the last day of school saying, school's out, and they toss their 
their papers in the air, you know, and um, I think Alice Cooper has a has a song, school's out forever, school's out for the summer. And so it's a celebration. <laughs> so I'm thinking, why should that be a celebration? Your only job was to learn. Mm. That was it. And now you're celebrating not learning. So not everyone leaves school with lifelong curiosity. And the question is, how do you maintain it? And I think it gets beaten out of us. I, I, I don't... I don't mean that physically, but just uh, we we think of learning as the school forces us to think of learning as being this sat this this satchel that gets filled with information that you then, of course, regurgitate for the exam, rather than view the world as a place as a as a target of inquiry and curiosity and discovery. These are two completely different approaches towards teaching. And so I think I and my fellow scientists, I, can, I, I think I can speak for almost all of them. We just never lost our childhood curiosity. That's such a good description. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. and There I, it is. You know? There it is. I mean, you know. And the funny thing is I was having a conversation about my wife or with my wife that you can't, you cannot focus on keeping our house clean. Like, just don't even worry, right? right. But your point about them running experiments, see... I've long believed in this idea of discovery. That's why we do the podcast. But the fact that they are, they're experiments. What happens when I do this? Which is essentially what the experiment is. And they even hypothesize in their own head. I mean, you can yeah. see it, you know? Yeah, and the, uh, another way to think of this is everything they encounter for the first time is something new and interesting. And initially when they're just pre-toddler, they want to taste it. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so you have to, you got to protect them so they don't die <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. To protect them on a level where, where they not, they're not at risk of creating disorder in the house. Then you're, you're thwarting something that I think is so inherently human Yeah. that you're, you're not doing justice as a parent to all that your kids can be as you raise them. You have become this kind of figurehead for this whole idea of curiosity and science and all of that. What do you see as your goal? I mean, with all of the talking communication book shows that you do, I know it is to ensure that this curiosity is, 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 lives on and all of that. But how do you see it? What's your mission? Yeah. So I'm going to give uh, a, an unexpected answer to that. Question. I love unexpected. I, I actually don't really have a mission. Mm-hmm. What I do is as a servant of the public's appetite for science. And uh, so, in other words, I'm sitting minding my own business in my office, and then the phone rings, and it's the evening news because the universe flinched. And initially, when all this began in my life, I'm sitting here in New York City, in Manhattan, in easy action cam vans drive from the news station to to record an interview. And initially they wanted me because I carry title director of the Hayden planetarium. So that's yeah. who you're going to go to if anything happens in the universe, of course. But the, uh, when I saw, for, for example, my, one of my earliest of these, I gave my best professorial reply. It took about <laughs> 20 minutes and then it got sound bitten to like 30 seconds on the air. So, Oh, that's what they want. So let me reshape my message to fit their medium. Even if they come to me, in my home, in my house, in my lecture hall. Yeah. So I said, if I'm going to, 
if I'm going to do this because it is asked of me, the least I can do is give them the best product I can. So I worked on it. I worked on delivering sound bites. I we can even practice one, and I'll show you how. Yeah, how I'd love to. <laughs> it, the anatomy of a sound bite. Yeah. So I just try to be the best I can be when I'm asked to step out in the service of the public's curiosity. For example, when I give public talks, I give about 40 a year. Um, I get about 200 invitations a month to make appearances, give talks, and that's whittled down heavily. Sure. About four per month for 10 months, and I don't uh, try not to give talks over the summer. And I say this only because rarely is that I'm giving a tour of my latest project that I want you to buy, right? That's not it. It's, it's a city invites me. And when I say a city, I mean the theater in that city, the, the organizers, the promoters, and, uh, and then I accommodate that request. And here's, here's the level at which I accommodate it. Uh, I give them a list of about 15 possible talks. Then I say, pick one, whatever you think your audience wants. And then the organizers, the hosts, the theater owners, they pick one. And then I give that talk for that theater on that night. So that's me serving an interest. Now, occasionally, I'm on the air because I'm marketed that way because a book just came out or mm -hmm. a Cosmos series is appearing. So yes, there are marketing people and I'm presented and there's the expectation that time and place and, and it, it all gets established. That's maybe 15% of the times I'm asked to be on the air. All the rest, I'm really just at home minding my own business and I'm perfectly happy to stay there. <laughs> I, I know, it's so funny. Like when we clicked on the video and I saw you, I mean, I had this really, and I know this is probably bizarre to hear, but almost like a quick out-of-body experience just in that you're just a real person. You're just a guy, like in your house, you know? And I, I wanted to ask this question about imposter syndrome. I just thought you were the perfect person to discuss this with. I'm sure you've heard a lot about it. I mean, did you ever feel that? Did you ever feel, I, I don't know if I am the one to be doing this? Because we, I've asked a lot of people this. Most say, look, Chris, almost everybody feels like an imposter at times. And I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson is the reason the word almost is in there. Like <laughs> you could really easily say, no, I, I have always been confident in my knowledge, my ability to deliver that knowledge and share. And I've never felt like an imposter. And I want to dig into that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So I only learned of the concept of imposter syndrome a few years ago. Okay. Uh, I don't know how long it's been coined as such. Uh, surely it existed as a, as a feeling and as a state of mind, but I only heard the term a few years ago and I thought about it with regard to me and I could not find a way that it applied. Primary, for a couple of reasons. My first public lecture where I was actually paid mm -hmm. to give, so, so professionally to give a public lecture, I was 15. <laughs> and I gave a talk at City College in their extension school. So these are adults. And there was a comet coming through. And it was sort of the brightest comet in a few years. And, and I had uh, obtained a lot of photos. I was already deep into astrophysics at the time from age 11. I mean, I knew I was interested in the universe from age nine, but it didn't gel into a career path until 11. So by the time I was 15, I had four years of this ambition, a whole four years. Yeah, of wow, a whopping four. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a, 
a fourth of my life at the time. <laughs> That's true. And so, and an even a greater fraction of my years of awareness, of yeah. course. Not really aware until you're like five. So yeah. it's almost half my life. And so I knew I had expertise sufficient to deliver to a random room of adults. Not expertise to deliver to professionals in the field. Right. But certainly the public, certainly the random folks in the room. Not only that, when you meet people at parties, even back then, I'm in middle school and early high school, or on the airplane or on a bus, and they see what you're doing, and they ask questions. So I, I had been in many situations communicating the universe to people. Uh-huh. What's this I hear about black holes or the Big Bang or the space program? And I knew enough to have that conversation, and I knew enough to know if they were interested yeah. in, in what I was saying and how I was saying it. And that sort of street-tested experience fed the in-room experience for that public talk. And I gave two talks, uh, uh, each of 45 minutes, and they paid me $50. Now, I want you to understand, $50, this is a zillion years ago because yeah. I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> this is around the Big Bang, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big Bang. A few milliseconds after the Big Bang. Um, and that was like a semi-infinite amount of money at the time. And I, I felt wrong by that. I felt, mm. I felt like this is just knowledge I'm sharing. I didn't sweat. There's no blood. Mm-hmm. I did not toil. How is it that someone is paying me for this? This is information I would give even if they didn't pay me. Right. So why are they paying me? And then I realized that it is a skill and like any other skill, whether or not you sweat at it, it required work and effort. And in this world, in a free market world, people pay for expertise. So I had to I had to abstract what I did from the fact that it was simply me talking to me expressing expertise. Then I thought, yeah, of course, my school teachers are paid. You don't do that for free. Right. And professors are paid and everybody's paid. So this is how the world works. So it took me a few months to get over that fact. And and now it's not a problem with me at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you bring up so something. I, I, got one, I got one more. Oh, good. With yeah. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the closest I came to the imposter syndrome. You ready? Yeah. I think you tell me okay. if this is a good example. I was in high school and time to take calculus. Now, for those who have never had calculus, let me just say one thing. It is a way bigger leap, conceptual leap, from algebra than algebra is from arithmetic, okay? It's just everything is different. How you, all the symbols are different. There's squiggly lines that they they use a whole other language's alphabet. Mm -hmm. You know, Greek letters start showing up. So I remembered, I I was a sophomore year. So was a sophomore, no, sorry, sorry. A junior or senior year. I think my junior year, uh, it was calculus. And I get the calculus book and you open up the front page and on the, on the boards before the front, you know, the, 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 before you start turning pages. So okay. there's just, just the front part of the book and the back part of the book. There's nothing but formulas, calculus formulas. Yeah. And I said, wow, I, I don't know what any of this means. 
squiggly lines and they're numbered and why are they numbered and what are they some of them don't even have equal signs what is going on it's scared and, and it was like this dense fog and i said i will never understand this i said to myself wow and and there i and i knew i had to know it if i want to be an astrophysicist right so i said all right i'll try i'll try so every week we learned a little thing and I'd go back to those open pages and I say, wait a minute, I know what that means. I don't know what the rest means. I know what that means. And this is actually useful. This is a useful list of formula. And every week went by, it was as though a dense fog dissipated. Hmm. And by mid semester, all formulas were transparent to me. And that was a lesson to me that if you first encounter something that is so intractable that you just want to give up, but you still care about it, then every day you invest in it. Because we have a flexibility. We have a, a hugely pliable mind. That's why brainwashing works, actually. Hmm. It works. It can work against you. Right. The fact that your mind can adapt, that your mind can, yes, you can slog through it, but you are making progress. However fast or however slow, you can make progress. And so that has been sort of lesson for me, metaphor for tackling otherwise impossible projects. Is that an imposter syndrome? I don't know. But I felt like I would never succeed first encountering that. And ever since then, I said, no. And if I take a little longer than you, because you're really brilliant and you got all straight A's, I don't care. I'm going to get there. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Do you have a lot on your mind and you need someone to talk to? Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. At BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, and it's absolutely convenient. And now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in anger, depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, you name it, they've got someone there for you. And with BetterHelp, you don't have to worry. Anything you share is absolutely confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. BetterHelp has 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. So check it out. As a listener of Smart People Podcast, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code SPP. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com SPP. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash SPP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. One last time, head over to betterhelp.com slash SPP. And now back to the episode. You know why I love that story? Well, a million reasons. I remember my calculus days, but we don't need to go there. Um, is this one of the themes that I heard? So, for example, you're on stage, you're speaking, and you're thinking, you know what? I can't speak to the professionals, but I can speak to the general public. Or you're in the classroom. You want to be an astrophysicist. You're not worried about the guy next to you or the girl next to you who's getting straight A's. You're worried about yourself. I believe oftentimes imposter syndrome comes from this idea of there's somebody out there better 
why me? So when you were talking about this speech, what really triggered me is I personally, and I know many creators, creatives, it's not so much that they are so nervous about being there. I think it's sometimes we ask ourselves, why me? There is somebody better. They're paying me $50, but I know of this guy who they could have paid $50 and he knows more than me. Therefore, I'm the imposter. I think that's a big part of it. This is just my interpretation. How do you fight that? I mean, now, look, you are the guy. Like, there are people out there who are going, well, I could present on this subject, but Neil deGrasse Tyson would be better. <laughs> I mean, that that's, that you know, that's how it goes. But take us back maybe throughout your time or just in general, what advice would you give to the person who's there going, yeah, I mean, I can probably talk to these people, but there's someone better. There's someone smarter. There's someone with more knowledge who would better serve them. So I, I'm already there. It's built in. This is a, a, a hidden fact about me. Not hidden. It's just there's no occasion to talk about it, except apparently now. That's right. You heard it here first. Because <laughs> you have the smart podcast. That's right. That's right. So here's what I do. I have a very strict, I don't want to say very, it's, I have a, a strongly held code of engagement. The code of engagement is, if I'm asked to do something, and I know someone else can do it as well or better, I decline. Because I don't need to do something that other people can do for you. What I can and should do is what no one else can do. Imagine if everyone contributed to this world the profile, the, 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 the portfolio of their talents that no one else can contribute. Just imagine that. That would be extraordinary. The world would change overnight. Not only that, people would seek to acquire expertise and talent that distinguishes them from others. You know what that would mean? They would take harder classes. What happens when you take an easy class? You're probably doing it to pad your GPA because easy classes mean you do well. Well, so is everyone else taking that easy class. So now you get out and you think your GPA is distinguishing you, but in fact, you took classes that everyone else took and also did well in. So that when it comes time to apply for a job, you've got nothing to distinguish yourself against anybody else who took the same easy class as you did. So take the harder class. Your grade won't be quite as high, but no one asks you your grades after your second job. No one cares. I don't know how old you, how old you are, but I bet you don't even remember the last time someone asked you your grades. No. It, so there's a point where it simply doesn't matter. But what does matter? Your ability to solve problems. Are you moral? Are you a good leader? Are you a good communicator? Um, do you work hard? All of these other elements matter. And so I... Typically, only so, so. For example, when Andrewian approached me, Andrewian is Carl Sagan's widow, oh, and wow. keeper of the Cosmos Flame, sure, co-writer of the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan. And by my read of their outputs, she's the one that puts sort of the 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 depths of humanity in the writing, and she gives a human dimension to scientific discovery and exploration. So she's a fundamental part of the identity of Cosmos as a television product. It is so distinct in what it represents is that it's hard to even think of it as a documentary. 
you know, documentaries, we say, let's watch a documentary this afternoon. You say that there's a certain expectation for what and look, yeah. <laughs> what it looks like, what it would feel like. And Cosmos sits in another place. Mm-hmm. So, now why did I even go there? Oh, she approached me. Uh, this is back in 2011, 2012. Would I be interested in hosting a new version of, the, of Cosmos? This is now 30 something years later, later than the original in 1980. So I know people who would love to do that. And I thought about it and I said, you know, there are other people, I, I don't need to do this. The people who climb over each other to host it. Right, right. So, I, so I, I, I basically declined initially, but I went home and I thought about it. And, I, you know, I've met Carl Sagan and I have a certain sort of origin story that I could tell with regard to my relationship with Carl Sagan. If that is somehow folded into my hosting, then maybe my hosting of Cosmos would be a unique contribution as host rather than simply another talking head uh, of my colleagues. I, I would have been a talking head, but if I'm a talking head with, with em, in, intellectual, emotional connection yeah. to the guy who I'm taking the throne, the, the, the torch from, then maybe I could do something unique for the product. And so then I agreed but only after I went through that soul, soul searching. Well, and and that makes sense. But here's the thing. It's because you're you, right? Like if everyone asked themselves that, they would never do anything because, <laughs> because, well, because, right. because think about it. You, you're the director of the Hayden Planetarium. I mean, yeah, you are the, we keep going up this iteration. So I want to bring it down to the average person. And I also want to say this. You're the perfect person to ask you this. I have struggled with this my whole life. I am so happy to ask you. There are 7 billion people on this planet, right? You know numbers, you know people, you know size, space, all that. It's perfect. We hear this a lot. Tell your story. If if you use your unique talents and gifts, you're the only one that can do it. Kind of along the lines of what you were saying, but every answer you have is scientific and pragmatic. Are we really that different? I, I am, I am, when I get logical, I go, look, yeah, I might be different compared to the hundred people I know, but not compared to the 7 billion. Now the internet connects us and I start spiraling down this, you know, we're not unique. I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, does anyone else have a smart people's podcast? Mm -hmm. Has anyone else been doing that for 10 years? Have, That's a good point. Uh, what, yeah. what, what are you saying? Are, are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, now think about it. Uh, many people go to college to get a good job. And then they look at what the marketplace is and they see, oh, the, um, the attorneys are gainfully employed or, or medical doctors. or And so they'll do what everyone else does simply because there are job openings available. I guess we're not really talking about them because they have a job no matter what. The field accommodates them because, yes, I need another neurosurgeon because I can't have a neurosurgeon, one neurosurgeon 24-7. Right. So I need multiple neurosurgeons to operate whatever. That's a bad example, but it's sense. a clumsy example, but the point is made. Yeah. So if, so I guess what I'm referencing is if you, if you have some creative talent yeah. in any way, then express them. And if you're not distinguishing your, yourself, find a way to be even more creative. There's nothing wrong with the pressure to be creative. And the good thing about creativity, maybe the best thing about creativity, is that if you think of some famously creative things like Van Gogh's The Starry Night, the painting. Is that the one right behind you? I 
it's behind me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have it in, in many different. So I have to, uh, an oil painting replica behind me yeah. at my office desk. There's an eyeglass holder. Oh wow! There's that. There's it's on the back of my phone case. Uh, it's on the back of my computer, which you can't see because the camera faces forward. <laughs> but uh, so if you look at Starry Night, and wow, it's no matter how long you wait. No matter how many people are born, practically, mm -hmm. no one will ever paint Starry Night. Van Gogh painted Starry Night mm -hmm. in 1889. It is a uniquely creative effort, as is practically any painting in the world. So artists live in the world of let me express my unique creativity. Artists now capital A, so that could be set designers, sure, sculptors, uh, novelists, people who create for a living. So yeah, yeah, you want to you, you want to distinguish yourself, work harder, learn more, take more courses in in creative thinking, and so yeah, I don't think you're born out of the box with this uniqueness. That's the I think the point you're saying. Yeah, everyone is saying oh, we're all unique individuals. Mm -hmm. No, uh, let me say that differently. We are, all have the capacity to be unique as adults in a way that people want to be the path to your door. Yeah. And, and so do you have, do you, have you invested of yourself what that takes? While most people are watching sports on the weekends, I'm working. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I'll watch the big games, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, an American or anything, Sure. but, but, but think about how much time we spend doing nothing. Uh-huh. And what I've done over the years is, is re-deputize that time in the service of my interests and my goals. And you can reclaim many, many hours a week, which adds up 52 weeks a year over 10 years. You're talking about months of time, uh -huh. months. And on your deathbed, what are you going to be saying? Did, did you, are you, you know, how, how long are we on this earth? What, what? And, and it's, you're on this earth against stupefying odds. The number of possible people genetically who could exist, most of them will never even be born. And you are born and you are alive in this world. You're, unless you believe in reincarnation, holding them aside for the moment. <laughs> this <laughs> Just world, put them over here. <laughs> put them over here. <laughs> Got one shot. So uh, lifelong learners tend to be more successful at rendering uniqueness in their lives that other people can see and appreciate and compensate them for. Yes. And, and you're speaking to lifelong learners right now. You know, I didn't plan on going that far into, into imposter syndrome, but I just, with you, it's, it's, thank you for that. We are here to, in some aspects. Oh, one, other, uh, one other thing about imposter syndrome. Please do. I spent my whole formative years up through age 17, 18. So high school, middle school, with most people either not recognizing or embracing my own ambitions that I had expressed or actively diminishing them. Uh -huh. I grew up in a time where people with darker skin color were, seen, were athletes and dancers and you know, entertainers, not scientists, certainly not astrophysicists. Uh -huh. So the cultural forces though not explicitly racist as they were in my parents' generation, they were implicitly 
I would outright call it racist. They were implicitly non-accepting of my ambitions. So what I had to achieve to get noticed, by the time I achieved it and got noticed, there's no chance of imposter syndrome because what I overcame was greater than what I would otherwise had to have achieved to get in the door. Yeah. Yep. It, it's like the, it's like, um, Jackie Robinson entering the big league, <laughs> right? The first black person, he's like MVP and rookie of the year. And you say, wow, black people must be good at baseball. No, there's a million of them out there. <laughs> You've just been ignoring them for 50 years. Right. And you could only notice them once they were way better than your average player. Yeah. Do you think an average black person could have broken into major leagues in 1947? Right. Just average. No way. Like right exactly in the middle. No, he'd be scrutinized and be judged as poor, as, as a bad player. Mm -hmm. That's how this psychology of this works. So, yes, I had to work harder to get noticed. And by that time that's happening, there is no imposter syndrome. Yeah. Cause I'm already there. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by express VPN. Have you ever been searching online for stuff that you probably don't want others to know that you're searching for? I mean, maybe it's not nefarious things or bad things, but you wanted to keep your browsing history private. I know most of you are probably thinking, Hey, why don't you just do that in incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or whoever your local provider is, ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and it's super easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, cell phones, computers, and even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you to not be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com SPP and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash S-P-P. One last time, expressvpn dot com slash S-P-P to learn more. And now back to the episode. You know, it sounds like you're really speaking to, and I can't believe I don't know who wrote it, but there's this amazing book everybody knows. It's called uh, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. It's essentially that. I mean, that's what Jackie Robinson did. To some extent, right. that's what you did. And I think it's all in this service of you have to earn it, right? You have to you have to harness the the creativity you have. You have to practice it. And then when you deliver it to the world, if it's unique, as it should be, maybe you'll find your place. One other point here is you need a very accurate understanding of your own talents, mm. lest you lead a deluded life 
thinking you're greater than you actually are, or worse, that thinking you're less than you actually are. And so it means constantly interacting with others who are experts in the field and measuring yourself and, and leaving your ego at the door because it's not about ego, it's about learning. And if you realize there's something you don't know, that someone knows much better than you, then you learn it. Learn it better than they learn it. But you'll, you only know that in those encounters and those exchanges. And so uh, I knew I belonged among the ranks of astrophysicists when I attended astrophysics conferences. And I'd listen to talks and I'd listen to questions other people asked. And I say, and I got a better question than that. And I would ask them and people would look, hey, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so my grasp and understanding was at least competitive with what was going on in these, in these, um, in these research conferences. And I said, yes, I belong in this community. Wow. And a community I'm very proud to be a part of the the world's community of astrophysicists. Well, Neil, we're here, uh, luckily enough, to discuss in some capacity your brand new book, Letters from an Astrophysicist. And I was mentioning this before we hit record. Uh, I was lucky enough to read it. It's one of the coolest books I've read in a long time simply because of how unique it is. I just want to let our listeners know this is a book full of essentially, aside from a few differences, people wrote you letters and you responded. My first question, and I've been dying to ask you this, you actually respond to people. Like, <laughs> you're so busy. I have to imagine that people that write to you do it just hoping you'll read it, not hoping you'll respond. And you do. Why? Right. So you uh, let's change the word do to past tense. I did. You did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well played. Do is making a very big assumption there. Yes. So for about a 10-year period. Uh, from, a, I guess, 2000 to 2010, around around there, my email was publicly accessible. Right. A few clicks, you get in, you find it. And so people would write in. Half might be just simple or rather straightforward questions of science. I have a staff of people who have expertise, graduate students, even some talented undergraduates. And I would sort of farm it off to this group of folks who would answer those and they would answer under their own name, by the way, sure. saying Neil was too busy. I'm answering on his behalf. The rest were questions that were inspired by something I said that I did, that I influenced the person in some way that affected them requiring a much more personal response. And so that was about half. And so I would do that. Of those responses, I'd find myself, for some of them, investing a few levels higher of sort of literary construction in my replies. Or I would do some little bit of extra homework to make sure that my replies were fully fleshed in the way they wanted or expected. Anytime I wrote a reply like that, I said, you know, I might want to collect this kind of letter one day for a volume. Mm. So I put it aside in a, in a, in a, in a folder. So those letters that had a little bit of extra me in them, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, they were put aside. And I would say one in 10 such letters were so designated. Then a couple of years ago, I'd looked in that folder. There was like 500 letters in that yeah. folder, 500 letters. And I yeah. said, it's, it is time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I started <clears throat> calling them and editing them down. 
some letters are very rambly bambly. And so you can't, you can't put all the, their whole letter in it. Others I just paraphrased and it's, they, I called them down to 101 letters and that is the corpus of this book. Neil, let me tell you, one of the things that really struck me is your, how pragmatic you are. I mean, look, I've talked to a lot of thought leaders. I've been in this space for a while. I've read a lot of books. A lot of people like to wax poetic to some extent, theorize. I mean, I'm not saying you don't theorize, but, you know, it gets a little more ephemeral, if you will. You take these questions and you treat them as I'm going to try to answer it, not I'm going to try to converse. It was so refreshing. I mean, even a lot of the time, not a lot, but there's a few where they reference things about race and you kind of, I, I remember one off the top of my head specifically, you didn't dismiss it, but you said, look, look around. It's not that it's, it's not, man, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you just very pragmatically attacked it where you could have gone. This is a moment for me to explain something to somebody. Yeah. Th thanks for noticing that. Yeah. That's very purposeful. Uh, primarily because people come to me with very deeply held thoughts and beliefs. There's many letters in it, at least possibly as many as 15 or, or at least a dozen that make direct reference to God. Mm. And can God be reconciled with science? And one of them, it pleads, it says, dear Dr. Tyson, is there any way <laughs> the universe could be 6,000 years old? Any, because God can please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that questioner juxtaposes two concepts that are actually separable variables in the question. They're saying, can the universe be 6,000 years? I, I must know because, um, I, I can't, I can't imagine living in a universe without God. Mm. So please answer this. Now, of course the 6,000 year old universe is what you would get. If you go through your begats in biblical Genesis, add up life spans and things, you get basically 6,000 years, at most 10,000 years. Whereas biological, chemical, physical evidence of the universe tells us that we're, we are multiple billions of years and it's landing at 14 billion years. No way to reconcile that with 6,000. Uh. So, so I just said, look, no, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a big no. Yeah. I, I put a little no and I said, here's why. Yeah. All right. Right. And I said, but that doesn't preclude you from feeling God in the universe. No one's going to take that away from you. Not in this country. Mm -hmm. No one should take it away from you. Not in this country where we have a constitutionally protected free, to, free expression of religion, provided it doesn't infringe on the rights of others. So don't connect the age of the universe with whether you think God is in the universe. These are separable variables, and it and many people in the world do just that. Right. So that was an example where I'm just saying, look, no, you cannot reconcile these. Here's why. Yeah. And I wasn't angry about it. I was just saying, no. Another in that vein was somebody said, could there possibly be a big hairy ape wandering the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> <laughs> Straight out. Okay. <laughs> Maybe he didn't want to utter the word Bigfoot. Right. Okay? Exactly. Thinking, I, I get turned away. Yeah. Uh, so I just, rather than say no, I gave an argument for why that was unlikely. And I remember I that one, by the way. Wanted... <laughs> What's that? I remember that exact letter. And it, you, you basically just said like, let's go through, okay, here's the space that they would be wandering. Here's how many people are there. Here's how, what's the chance we never saw it <laughs> or we don't, we right, don't have, right. a, we don't see, have but, but, but something of it. Yeah. After my reply, 
uh, he wrote back and said, but Dr. Tice, I'm very disappointed. I thought with man of your stature would be op more open-minded right. about this. <laughs> and I said, look, if it's a hairy ape and it reproduces, uh, there's going to be at least another one of the opposite sex. Yeah. A. B. Um, there'd be poop. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. You were very, <laughs> like I said, pragmatic. It. You can find it. Yeah. You can find its bones. And we just ha haven't. And we, we've stopped finding large mammals mm -hmm. in the world, unless they're living in the bottom of the ocean or something, but, or large animals in general. And, but we don't live on the bottom of the ocean. We do live on Earth's surface. So I, I just gave what I thought were simple but reasonable arguments to um, convince people. And then I said, if no one can be convinced by a reasonable argument, then they're not really there to have a discussion. They're there to preach. Exactly. To try to convert me to their way of thinking. And their way of thinking does not support it by the evidence. And I'm evidence-driven. Yeah. And, and it comes across. The other thing is, look, I don't want to... People are probably going, Chris, ask him about the world. Ask him about the galaxy. But I didn't want to ask a bunch of questions. You've been asked for decades. I mean, you've been putting content out. So a lot of those stock questions for, for lazy people listening, go read his books. Go watch you know, his shows. There are a few things I want to pick out from the book specifically to clue people in that really struck me, like really impactful. And I'll tell you probably the number one. You, um, I read one of your letters and it was to Professor Gates, professor at Harvard. Oh. And mm -hmm. he discusses this idea and, and you could say it better and people can read the book, but essentially he invited you to come speak on the idea of finding your roots, right? Finding where you came from, your, I guess, ethnicity, things like that. Who, well, no, no, he hosts... He hosts a PBS series okay. called Finding Roots, okay. and where he invites notable people, and then they find your roots, and then they discuss what their sort of origin story is genetically uh, back okay. through time. Okay. And he wanted me to participate in that program. Okay, that's so the TV happened. show, that's what it was. And like Oprah had done it, some big people, and you said, no, okay, that's fine. But you said, look, I'm less interested in finding my roots than recognizing I'm human and just looking at all humans. It was one of the most empowering things I've ever read because I thought, you're right. Why pigeonhole ourselves? I can compare myself to anyone who has ever accomplished anything because of how similar I am. And that I'm yes. getting goosebumps just saying it because that essentially was it. I mean, tell us about that. How can we use this knowledge of our similarities to really empower us to accomplish impossible things? Yeah, so... This goes deeper than that, and which shows up in another, in a different letter, where there's the urge for people to want to feel special. And I get that. Otherwise, you're just one in a crowd. But to feel special, we have come to, to declare that feeling special means you're different from everybody else. And I would assert that feeling different from everyone else is the greatest source of conflict in the world. The Nazis said, we're different from everybody else. We're not only different, we're better. And it's the different is better problem that our ego drives us to believe. And so I take a different tack. And that is, it's not so much that we're different from each other. It's that we have common DNA. We have, you know, precisely the same electrochemical phenomenon going on in our bodies that makes us human. Not only that, we are genetically connected to all other life on Earth. 
sharing something like 40% identical DNA with a banana. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I like to think of myself as special, not because I'm different, but because I'm the same. And if I'm the same as other humans, then my capacity to achieve can be drawn from what humans have achieved collectively in the history of our species. And especially true because when you say, well, this is my family, do you realize how arbitrary that is? I, I don't think you do. People say, this is my family. And, well, how about your cousins? Okay, they're my family too. Mm -hmm. Well, how about your great grandpa? Well, they're my family. Well, how about this person who lives next door? No, they're not my family. Well, you had to draw a line somewhere. It was arbitrary. I'll tell you how arbitrary it was. We can go through the mental exercise. There are 7 billion people in the world, as you duly announced at the beginning <laughs> of the podcast. Every single person alive has two parents. Okay? Let's just, let's do the extreme limit of this exercise. Every person alive has two parents. That means there are 14 billion people who begat the 7 billion living people. Okay. Each of them has two parents. So that goes to 28 billion people begetting the 14. Okay. Clearly, in the past, there weren't 28 billion people. There were fewer people in the past than there are right, today. Right, right. So there's a rapid convergence of who is begetting whom as you go backwards through time. If 100 years ago there were 2 billion people instead of, or 1.5 billion people instead of 7, then this exercise to reduce the 28 billion parents or the 48 billion grandparents down to 1.5 billion, more people are related in the recent past than we recognize. Wow. And in fact, any two people on Earth have a common ancestor. It's just a matter of how far back you go to find them. So I'm not going to say we are not family. I'm going to say we are family. You just go back far enough, draw the line there. Mm -hmm. Think about it. We're in America. America. And if, <laughs> America. If, you say, so if you say to America, what are you? That comes with some implications of ethnicity in the reply. So I'm Italian. Right. I said, well, where were you born? Oh, I was born in Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, okay, well, that's not Italy. <laughs> oh, well, where, were you, where were your parents born? Oh, they were born in Brooklyn. <laughs> Hey, John here. Quick production note. We had a Skype malfunction, but Chris was able to quickly reconnect with Neil, and now they're going to jump into some listener questions. And I know, given that we only have about 10 minutes, I have a few other things I want to cover. Is that okay? Okay, that's fine. Okay, that's Be fine. because one of the things we do that people love that listen is we actually solicit uh, listener questions. Yeah, let's do it. So let's I have kind of like a rapid fire. Take them however you would like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So here's the first. What advice would you give around making hard, important life decisions? How do you use your knowledge of the cosmos to make those tough inflection point decisions in life? That's a deep and interesting question. For me, what I try to do is, yes, I think about the universe, but in the context of a cosmic perspective, which allows you to take sort of the stratospheric view of whatever it is you're doing, which I think is important. It's possible to be distracted by details. In physics, 
physics 101, you learn that the world is an interplay of matter, motion, and energy with forces operating within it. And, and what do I mean by that is if there's a table, let's say, let's say it's Thanksgiving table, and there's turkey and this and plates and settings and stemware and, and flatware and chairs. To the physicist, it is four force vectors pointing to the ground. Okay? Mm -hmm. Four. And that is what's supporting the weight of the table and anything that's on it. After that, everything else is detail. Mm. So when you have this kind of background, you your urge is to say, let me strip it of detail that may be distracting me from, from the, the depth of thinking that I need to apply. Look at the most fundamental elements of this, then slowly layer back on the details before I make the decision. This happens with me every important decision I make in my, in, in my life. So to simplify things a little bit and to look less at the detail and more at kind of the overarching view. Yes, because ultimately that's what will prevail. You can always sure. change the food on the table, mm -hmm. the setting on the table, but the table's going to be there no matter what it holds. And oh, you also get to calculate how much food has to go on the table before the table breaks. <laughs> yeah. And usually it's that's not how it breaks. It breaks because people start dancing on the table. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's how you make decisions, right? That's going to dance on the table. <laughs> and now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. I got my first cell phone with one of the big wireless providers about 25, 30 years ago. Man, I'm old. This is crazy. And honestly, I've hated my monthly bill ever since. But then I discovered there's another option that could give me the premium service I'm used to at a fraction of the cost. I could cut my wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month and save hundreds of dollars by switching to Mint Mobile. For anyone out there who's looking to save without sacrificing service, switching to Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. For customers that hate their wireless bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile can pass significant savings on to you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. So listen up. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/slash smart. That's mintmobile.com slash smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Yeah. I love that. Here's another one. Uh, and these are again, listener questions. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing about us as a species or our planet, what would it be? If I could, if I could be like Thanos and snap my fingers and That's make it. things happen, change one uh, thing. One thing I would make everyone in the world lifelong learners through curiosity that is insatiable. I love that. If there was 
TripAdvisor for the universe, what would be your top recommended sites? I would want a trip advisor that could also move through time. Ooh. So go. all four coordinates of space and time. First, I'd watch the formation of the moon, which all evidence suggests that it's a collision between a Mars-sized protoplanet sides and Earth, side-swiping it, peeling off the outer layers of the Earth that then coalesced in orbit to form the moon. That would have been a spectacle. You can't view it from Earth because you die, but find <laughs> find some cozy perch in space and watch that happen. I'd want to see that. I'd want to go seven billion years into the future and see the collision between our Milky Way galaxy and all hundred billion of its stars and the Andromeda galaxy. That'll be look that'll be it'll be a slow moving train wreck, but a beautiful, stupendous one to watch um, as well. Uh, I'd also would like to, but what am I'm snapping for where I could be? And oh, anything. What, what this, this one is TripAdvisor can take oh, you TripAdvisor. anywhere. Right. Uh, I would also love to watch a black hole dine upon whatever it eats. That would just be fun. So I need a safe orbit uh, in its vicinity and throw a star into it. It's like feeding the, the hippopotamus mm -hmm. <laughs> or the lions in the cage. It would be cool. You have a black hole zoo. With a and you'd separate it by some safe moat and toss food into the black hole and watch it burp. That would be really fun. Also, <laughs> you got to visit Saturn. You go to uh, one of the moons of Saturn so you can see it from afar. And Saturn, I think, one of the most striking objects in the night sky. Last place I would visit, and not the last place, but in the top five places mm -hmm. I would visit, is one of Ju Jupiter's moons, Europa. It's a surface of ice afloat an ocean of water that's been liquid for surely billions of years. If there's life anywhere else in the universe, it would be in these Europa oceans. And I always think if we find life on Europa, what do you call it? Of course, you'd have to call them Europeans. Europeans. I, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. What big discovery do you hope we make soon? So I'm going to give a cop-out answer, then I'm going to give a real answer. The discovery I really want is the one we don't even know yet to make mm. because to ask that question is empowered only by answering questions that now sit before us. So in other words, yeah. did anyone even ask 100 years ago, could there be a multiverse? No, because quantum physics had to be invented and the expanding universe had to be invented and all of this had to be discovered before you can even pose that question. So I care about questions I don't even yet know to ask. So that's my sort of cop-out answer because I, I really feel that and I sure. do sleep over that. But more sensibly, uh, I want to know what dark matter is. I want to know what dark energy is. Dark matter is most of the gravity of the universe. Dark energy is making us accelerate. Uh, against the wishes of gravity. what? Who ordered that? Uh, I want to know what was around before the Big Bang. I want to know how life went from organic molecules to self-replicating life. These are, for me, my four greatest frontiers in all of science. Along those lines, how do you handle uncertainty? How do you handle the fact that there is so much we don't know and may never know? You, the very question implies that this is something that requires counseling too. Yeah, it does for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think people's discomfort with uncertainty drives so much interest in religions. Religions mm. offered historically and even today 
answers to many questions that people don't otherwise have answers to. What happens to me when I die? Where are my deceased relatives? What, you know, how did it all get here? That was the role of Genesis in the, in the um, Judeo-Christian, you know, in, in the, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. And if you, if you look at what role it has played, it has, it has been to, to ease people's discomfort with uncertainty. As a scientist, you have to embrace uncertainty. That is, it is half of what you think about in a day. The other half is the knowledge at the border of that uncertainty, hoping that some of it will spill out to help you understand what it is you do not know. I love Just it. To, it, it. In summary, to quote the poet, uh, I think Rainer Maria Rilke, I think it was the, the name of that poet, okay. a German poet, uh, there's a line, we must come to learn to love the questions themselves. Mm. Defining Neil deGrasse Tyson right there. Last one, you're going to get a kick out of this. I'm sure you've answered it before. Are we living in a computer simulation? I wish I had a good answer to say, <laughs> a, a good reason to say no. Wow. But I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, so so that's, it, if you were to put a percentage, what's the likelihood, do you think? Uh, near 100%. That we're in a computer simulation. Well, Well, just think about it. Every time there is peace and harmony in the world, something really disruptive happens. I know it. <laughs> this is just what a computer program would do for their own entertainment. The alien kid in the parents' basement who programmed us, right, with vastly higher intelligence than any of us can ever dream of, we are there for their entertainment. And I, had, I told this to someone and they said, oh, when, when peace and harmony reigns in the world, that's when they were called up to dinner. <laughs> their parents called <laughs> And then they come back. Well, that's two people. Let's throw in a politician that is really crazy. Exactly. Let's, let's throw in an invasion. Let's throw in an asteroid. Let's throw in. So, unfortunately, my best evidence for that we are programmed by a mischievous alien kid in the basement is the frequency with which highly disruptive things happen to the peace and harmony in the world. Wow. Neil, you have been so generous with your time. It has been honestly an honor and just a, a pinnacle of my podcasting career to have you on the show. Your book for everyone, Letters from an Astrophysicist, one of the best reads. It is so unique. I highly recommend it. Neil, before we let you go, anything else you want to impart on our listeners or anywhere else you would like to really draw their attention to? Yeah, thanks for asking. Generally, I count myself when I'm interviewed as a servant of the host. So uh, I, I, I delight in answering questions that you bring to me rather than tell you, here's what you got to make sure you say about me. <laughs> sure. That's just not my, my, my MO. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I will say that I agree with how you have reacted to the letters book. It is very different. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want to emphasize is you have never seen me in any YouTube video debating creationists, flat earthers, uh, conspiracy theorists, UFO people, all of that is in this book. Yes. <laughs> it is, it is, it is my things that I generally had never gone public with mm -hmm. because I counted them as sort of the, the conversation I would have with a person, um, you know, a, a private conversation I would have with, with people. And all of that is now out in the open and you'll know how I, think and feel about all those topics that previously I had spared you from. <laughs> well, and, and I know there's people listening saying, Chris, why didn't you ask him about, 
you know, religion or flat earth. And the simple reason was I knew we had limited time. I wanted to try and ask you some specific nuanced questions. Those things are covered in this book. I mean, in a, yeah. in, in a really question answer way, essentially, this book is a written version of a thought out interview as opposed to a podcast. So it's an extension in my mind. Yeah. And the and it's people asking questions that have deep meaning to their own life's plight. Yes. And because they're sort of handpicked for that depth and that level of uh, humanity that is expressed Absolutely. Uh, in and among people. There's a person who wrote me a letter who had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and he's got six months and he's writing to everyone who made a difference in his life. I mean, plus, oh, one other last thing before you go. Yeah. There's an entire chapter called Hate Mail. <laughs> yes. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> just to just to show that there are people who just really angry and pissed off with something I said or did. I want to make sure the reader had some exposure to that as well. Well, you know, they're out there again, Neil. Thank you for your time. I know it's crazy for you, so I'm going to uh, let you go, but appreciate it. This will be airing in the next three to four weeks. We'll be sure to let your folks know. I can't wait Excellent. to get it out there. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank Have you. a good All one. Right, bye. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Well. That was Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Neil's book, Letters from an Astrophysicist, is available wherever books are sold. We really hope that you enjoyed that interview. It's not every day that we get to talk to people such as Neil deGrasse Tyson, so this was a special one for us. And now on to the housekeeping. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at Smart People Pod. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can do so monetarily by heading over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Or if you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, just leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you downloaded this episode. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter over there. All right, we've got a lot of great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned, and we'll see you all next episode.